Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them. Tonight, we're talking with Jamie, uh, Jamie, rather, a game designer from the Philippines, uh, prolific game jam participant, and sword queen of some notoriety. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on the show, Jamie. Would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners that might not be familiar with you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, yeah, I'm Jamie uh, of Sword Queen Games. My pronouns are they, them. And uh, let's see, what else is there to say? I'm from the Philippines. That's right, from Manila, Philippines. I'm 36 years old, and I'm having a lot of fun uh, designing games and interacting with the community. Yeah, so, I mean, in I mean, talking about interacting with the community, I only really became aware of you, I think, maybe a month or two ago, uh, and have been really interested in the work that I've seen you putting out so far. Um, but uh, it, I think you've, in, in the short time that I've at least seen you be active, I'm not quite sure how, how long you've been active in the online spaces. Mm -hmm. But in the stuff, short time that I've seen you, you've contributed a lot to a lot of different conversations. So <laughs> uh, I, was, I was very excited when I managed to uh, secure the interview with you. Um, because I really want to talk to you about what your experience with role-playing games has been and how you've come to where you are. Uh, so I thought what might be nice to begin with is if you told us how you first got interested in role-playing games, um, and then we'll sort of see how we transition from there. Right, right. So um, I was a bit of a late bloomer. Well, I mean, compared to a lot of people I know in the industry and in the community, I... I had a really rough time with D&D when I was 14. Like, it was a really bad session. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, it was really, it was basically me as a halfling trying to take on a gelatinous cube by myself while everybody else was trying to use diplomacy checks on a, I think it was a deaf dwarf, now that I think about it. It was really bad. It was a really bad experience. I didn't have a good time. So I kind of swore off RPGs, and I thought I'd never be interested it wasn't until I was much older, I think like I was uh, 26, 27, when I found out my friend was playing Star Wars Saga Edition. And the moment it's Star Wars anything, <laughs> I kind of lose my mind. So I started that way. I started out just as a player. Um, I was having such a good time that I decided to try the current edition of D&D. At the time, it was 4th Ed. And I started GMing myself. And... I think, in general, I enjoy GMing more than I do playing, though um, that's sort of changing lately, but for most of my years, yeah, for the last almost 10 years, it's been mostly me as a GM, interacting with my friends, finding new people who want to play games. It's interesting you say that you, um, that you got started late. I also think of myself as starting late when I look at the prevailing narrative of oh i played right. when i was a kid yeah when i was 10 years old yeah i i either played when it first came out or i played because my parents played um <laughs> and you know or i played because some friends played it in high school um and then i started playing when i was like i think i had my first game when i was 19 but i didn't really start playing till i was 20 right. and then yeah. you mentioned oh i believe we were and i started really when i was 27 <laughs> i'm only 28 <laughs> 
<laughs> I actually <laughs> thought that we were a bit closer in age, and then you're like, oh, I'm 36. I'm like, whoa, okay. Yeah, Not that yeah. there's a problem oh, with you being 36. You know, I just thought that you were closer uh, yeah. to my age. Oh, it's the Asian genes and my love for anime. So that, makes, <laughs> that keeps me young. So. <laughs> Interesting. Takes notes for future transhumanist plants who just need to yeah. consume more anime to stay young. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess my next question talking, you, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, your experience in terms of enjoying GMing a bit more has been changing a little bit lately. Mm. How I assume that that is related a little bit to the fact that you now are making your own games. And in particular, I'm interested in how you went from playing games to making them. Because there's normally, there's there's a lot of different responses there um, as to why that is. And I'm interested to hear what your reason is. What was your push or impetus for moving into making your own games? Right, right. So I'm going to try my best not to not to ramble. Uh, <laughs> I mean, please do. That's that's kind of the point of the show is that we want to more so than other uh, interview style things. I want to give you a space to talk about what you're passionate about, free of need to be cohesive. Right, right, right. Okay, so I guess what started, I think first and foremost, I was really like I said, I was running D and D fourth edition mostly and um so the relationship between the gms and the players are very different right and i felt like at the time i was fighting against the system a lot like uh, people made fun of me because i didn't like having dragons or dungeons in my games um i mostly ran eberron i mostly ran my own version of eberron or some crazy things uh, and I always felt like I was fighting against the system. I was always just making my own stuff. I couldn't quite wrap my head around the math. And then when fifth edition came along and it sort of went back to its roots where it was like, cause a lot of the new stuff in fourth ed, I like, like I like the tactics. I like the roles that monsters played. I love the monster stat blocks. So when fifth ed happened, I just couldn't connect to the material. I was like, Oh man, now I'm fighting against stuff like, uh, yeah, for lots of people, it was a return to what they were familiar with. But for you, right. it was a re- like, it was a whole it? new thing. <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, it was so it was so difficult for me to get into it. And you know, I don't begrudge anyone who enjoys D anD. D. I mean, if they love the system, they love the system. If they love the world, they love the world. So, uh, but for me, I felt like it was so hard for me to connect. And around that time, um, one of my best friends, Phil. Uh, Phil is super into RPGs like I am, and he recommend he recommended that I try out Powered by the Apocalypse, right? And so that's when things started to change and shift because the relationship between the GM and the players are so different, right? Because the players are asked to create the world with you. Uh, the GMs are asked to not have to come up with everything all the time. And I think one of the things that I fought hard against D&D was it sort of encouraged the idea of playing with a module, playing with an adventure, planning out everything in advance. And I have this tendency to make up stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it, it's a game that is structured in a way that it is difficult to improvise. Mm. Um, right. You can't improvise an enemy or a monster unless you have a lot of intrinsic... That's in your head. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right, right. 
So it was so hard to like put it together, but um, so I would end up having to just reskin monsters behind the GM screen. Uh, I had to just, but I think D&D &D taught me how to have a good poker face, right? Because I had to pretend I knew what I was doing <laughs> for the sake that of my face. That is a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so bringing that into PBTA, um, I'm trying to think of, I think the first game I really ran, oh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was, was it Bluebeard's Bride or was it Masks? I'm trying to remember which one. Both are good. <laughs> yeah, both are really good. Both right? are really so, excellent examples. <laughs> yeah, so I started with the PBTA on that side of things. In fact, I didn't even get to play Apocalypse World until just this year, which is, you know, which is funny, but um, I played so many other PBTA games. And so in that, I sort of started to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm the GM, I'm the facilitator, but what my players bring to the table lore wise, character wise, setting wise is just as important, if not more important, right? I started to realize the more that the system encouraged the players to actively co-create and engage, it made it much easier for me to create a game that emotionally engaged everyone at the table, right? So um, I have lots of really great stories from Masks and Bluebeard's Bride and all these other games. Uh, I had, I think one of my favorites was I had a player in a mask game. He, he had this awful moment where his character, uh, this bull, uh, so the, the theme of the bull is about who they love and who they rival against, right? Uh, and uh, it was just this horrible scene where he had to save someone else. In order to do that, he had to give up his memories of his entire relationship with the person that his character was in love with. And so it was a really, like, I made up the move on the spot, which PPTA, you know, encourages you to do. He rolled for it. He rolled snake eyes. It felt like, oh, man, it has to be. <laughs> oh, wow. You have to tie a relationship. And so it was such a sad, beautiful moment. I could really feel the whole table coming together, really feeling for what happened. And he didn't even tell me until, like, a few weeks later, like, every time he heard a sad love song on the radio, he'd be thinking about Oh, wow. That's very good. <laughs> that is excellent. Yeah, yeah, even though he's happily engaged and he's like, now he's happily married, but he still thinks about uh, what happened to that character. We haven't even like closed the book on that one yet, but I keep telling him, you know, I'm really rooting for the two of you, for your character and that character, even though that other character is now a broken crystal, gross, uh, crystal ghost in his uh, sanctuary. He's now using a Doom playbook. It's a, it's a really amazing <laughs> game. <but. laughs> Masks is uh, fantastic and is pretty much my... My favorite way to do anything superpowered is the model that masks presents where your superpowers are just the, uh, your superpowers are just names for what your powers are. There aren't mechanics for each power. It's there's just moves like there's moves for I use my superpowers to overcome a problem or I use my superpowers yeah. to protect someone and right, right. and in masks it's and then it's your superpowers are just changing the way you describe it. It's like, well, I don't have super strength, so I'm not describing mm -hmm. defeating mm -hmm. him with super strength. I'm not using the super strength move. I'm yeah, using exactly. attack with my powers move and my powers are yeah. weird techno pistols. <laughs> um, Which I really Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to say. And so, from there, how did that lead you to? I mean, obviously, you're making your own moves on the fly. Right. Where did you? Right. How did that then build into this? I need to make a game. 
Yeah, actually, um, I will honestly say it was hubris. <laughs> hubris <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> uh, back in 2017, I looked this up before we started out today just to make sure I got the dates right. Um, so just a little bit of background, like here in the Philippines, um, mainly in Manila, I can speak for the Manila, Metro Manila experience. Um, we have a lot of people who love games. Um, we're always trying to get new people into the hobby. And one of those things, one of those groups um, I volunteer at regularly, they're called Gamers and GMs Philippines. And they set up sort of, at the time it was like monthly events. Now it's like uh, every few months. And they try to, what I love is they not only have places where you can play D&D, but they try to introduce as many different games as possible. And this particular theme in 2017 in July was, uh, it's in Tagalog, Magpa, Mapaglorog Encanto, um, RPG Con. So basically it's like, um, it was supposed to be trying to put a spotlight on like Filipino games and Filipino themes. And so people were encouraged to just run whatever system they wanted. That's but very cool. Could, yeah, but they could like put a Filipino theme to it. And so there was a huge look at folklore, at, um, at community, at legends, at myths and stories. And I thought, you know what? I love PBTA so much. It can't be that hard to <laughs> put together <laughs> a PBTA game. Um, I, every time I think about my past self, I just laugh at her so much. <laughs> um, I mean, I have an interesting theory about this, but I'll get to that after you finish. Okay. Okay, because like I think from a GM perspective and from a player perspective, PPTA just seems so streamlined, right? It just so, mm -hmm. seems so easy and so uh, so ridiculously easy to pick up. But it wasn't until I started trying to make the game that I realized, wow, there is so much. There's so much work that goes into this that's absolutely invisible. Like, like I started to realize, man, these these moves from Mass to Bluebeard's Bride are sublime. Uh, but yeah. it's don't see the hard work, you know. <laughs> in, the, in the power in in, in in PBTA games, like a good PBTA game, a lot of the work that's gone into making that is on making it so that playing the game is all yeah. not effort effortless, but it's not a task. It's right. not. It's not a. It's not a challenge set to you. Like it is not a difficult thing to learn to play a Powered by the Apocalypse game because the mechanics are purposefully built to be as accessible as they possibly can. And so there's a lot of work that goes into how do I distill this down into just what it needs, but also yeah. it needs to be evocative and it needs to pull you into the moment. Right, right, exactly. Like all of those things. I was like, how do I fit everything in a sheet of paper for all the moves? How do I? And I realized I had sort of like really set myself up <laughs> such hubris, such hubris this past jammy because um, I told myself, okay, I want to make a, a, a Pinoy game, you know, Filipino game, um, but I want it to be post-apocalyptic and I want it to be, have heavy transhumanist vibes. I want robots. Yes. I want, <laughs> but I also want to like instill a sense of spiritualism and magic where technology and magic and spirituality don't have any boundaries. There are no differences. And I was like, how do I get across all of this, like it was just absolutely insane. And not to mention that like a lot of these like original folklore, like a lot of these like creatures and elementals that are so much a part of our culture. Like as I started to create, I realized, you know, a lot of this, this stuff is kind of problematic. Like a lot of, a lot of these monsters and a lot of these folklore creatures are about 
women, you must keep yourself pristine and virginal. You must protect yourself. You must depend on the man to make all the decisions for you. And I was like, yeah, I'm not comfortable. <laughs> I'm totally not comfortable uh, writing that into this game. So like, I also had to deconstruct it and take it apart, but how could it still feel Filipino? What does it mean to be Filipino now? And on top of that, I'm also, I'm also biracial. Like I'm, my mom is Filipina, but my dad is Algerian, uh, which is in North Africa. And oh, wow, so, yeah. Wow, wild. Yes. You know that what I mean? That like, certainly <laughs> explains the Google results when I got our pronunciation guides for your name. Right, right. <laughs> Trying so to work just, out how to pronounce your surname. And it was like, <laughs> nope. Yeah. <laughs> it was so complicated. So... So actually, while I was making the game, I, I had a few heartbreaking moments because I would run the game for friends mm. and they would sort of say, you know, Jamie, I don't know if you really know what it means to be Filipino. I don't know if you understand, wow. you know, and it was it was like I, I honestly cried about it a few times no, because I've been, yeah, cause I've been living here since I was 10 years old. I really consider myself to be Filipino, but like there's always this sense of outsiderism. And I realized that was leaking into the game. Like I hadn't thought about it when I was designing it, but because in the game, by the way, I forgot to say it's, uh, it's called the uh, Cursed Children of Bathala. It's so funny. It's the first game I ever worked on, but I haven't officially released it yet because <laughs> it's such Again, a monstrous undertaking. I have a theory about that that I will share. <laughs> no, I'd love to hear your theory first though, before I, before oh, I go back. Uh, to well, I, I mean, I think perhaps more importantly to say now is that I, I don't... Mm, I certainly have experience of otherness, but they're definitely not the same as um, yours. I mean, obviously, I am a white person in a post-apocalyptically white <laughs> country. Wow, that's um, an interesting way of calling it. Okay. <laughs> I borrowed that concept from uh, Ashton McCallum, um, who described Australia as a post-apocalyptic country before because of the fact that... Wow. I mean... I use it now in this context to ref to attempt mm -hmm. to softly refer to the fact <laughs> that Australia is a country with a population that's 93 or 97% white, mm -mm. when it really has no <laughs> geographical reason <laughs> for being <laughs> white. It is... <laughs> To not beat around the bush any more than I already have. It's white because of genocide. And right, right. Oh, gosh, yeah. We probably don't want to talk too much about that because that's a different conversation. But um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about that um, because, like, my family isn't from here either, but I'm often mm. considered to be mm -hmm. from here. But I'm from different British colonial okay. <laughs> locations i'm a first generation australian um but i mean still you know just as horrible in the other places um mm -hmm. but uh the thing that i was going to say relating to the game design thing is the fact you, you know you're talking about how your game you this game that you worked on first still isn't released similarly the first game that i made is also not finished because the way that I and each and each new game that I make gets finished <laughs> faster because right, right. like the first game I made nowhere even near playable um, mm -hmm. 
the second like couple of games I made kind of, you know, playable, but they need something more. The most recent game I made is taking forever to make because of the fact that it is just a larger project. Right. But it's been so much easier to work on. And then like the last couple of, like I made a game in like a month because of the fact that I could, I was, I had the tools now to be like, I have a month. These are the three things I want to do. I can fit it into this space. If I do this, I can remove this part. Like you, you can, you know, you have a clearer idea of like what you need to build to mm-hmm. ma- to get it ready and you have yeah. a clearer idea of what the challenges are going to be and so you can tackle those challenges more directly rather mm-hmm. than like on your first project it's kind of like oh yeah i'll just make a game and it'll be oh yeah it'll use fate because it's kind of already a fate game but i just need to change the way some of the aspects work and and actually this is a lot of work and <laughs> It's a lot going on here. And why would you play this game over just using Fate Accelerated normally? Like, why do you need my game? Is it just a setting book, really? Well, that sort of stuff. And so you you make your first game and then... And then it's like, eh, it's going to take a lot of work to get that finished. I can start a new project and get it finished faster and it'll be better. Right, right. Yeah, because actually, I feel like in a, uh, a lot of ways, I got lovingly tricked uh, into getting into uh, like game design in terms of like game jams. Because so, like you know, I worked on that first game. Um, I got it to a playable state because I got it to a state where I can run it confidently. But I, you know, I mean, I still want to change a few mechanics. Um, like now, I want to try some of the more newer PBTA stuff that people are talking about. But basically. It's playable, but I can't just create the stuff that will make it easy for someone else to run it, right? Like, I want yeah. it to be that you don't have to be Filipino to, like, be able to pick it up and Yeah, live, it. live, love, die is at the stumbling block of, oh, now I have to tell other people how to run this. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's, it's such a huge, yeah, yeah, it's such a huge, like, thing. But, but at the same time, I feel like, like all the games I'm working on now it's making me a better designer so that I can go back to that game uh, and really do it justice. I feel like I'm almost there. Maybe I just need a few more months of working on a few other things. But in terms of game jams, I really just got into it uh, this year, like around February, I double checked the dates. Um, there was this amazing game jam that came out, the sad mecha jam, the emotional mecha jam. The emotional mecha jam, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I was like, um, I was just like, wow, this looks amazing. And uh, I love him to death, Ben Chong uh, of Swords and Flowers. He was talking about it, and I saw how active he was on Twitter uh, because I came, we know each other like through RPGC, um, RPG Southeast Asian. Um, yes. And so we know each other C online. Felt like the ocean. Right, right, right. And, uh, and from there, I saw like he had a lot of great ideas. I, he shared some of his tweets on Facebook. I went to Twitter and I was like, wow, there's this amazing world <laughs> on Twitter and people are making amazing games. And so I decided to just put together, um, like I was trying to make it a micro RPG and looking at, a, at it now, I'm like, yeah, Jam, uh, it's a, try to convince yourself it's a micro RPG. <laughs> uh, but basically it was inspired by Titanfall 2, uh, the idea of 
what happens when a mech and their pilot crash land on a planet, but the, but the pilot is unconscious, the pilot is wounded, and the mech has to make their way back. But I lovingly stole parts of Bluebeard's Bride where the mech is separated into the emotions of the pilot and is attached to the memories of the pilot. So the, the line between what is AI, what is the pilot, what is a machine, what is a human is blurred. Um, so when you pick a playbook, you pick if you're going to be uh, anger, regret, fear, oh. and <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> so, so good. I ha- I have so much fun running the game because um, the first time I ran it, I only had two players, and it was only love and anger. So <laughs> you can see how good they were emotions. like, <laughs> I know, and they were like interacting with the world so differently, and it was so much fun. And then the second time I played it, I had a full set, um, but it was so funny because on one side of the table. I had fear and uh, I had fear and anger, not wanting to understand where love <laughs> was coming from and where we're love and regret were coming from. So they were like fighting against each other, but also trying to protect the pilot at the same time. So, uh, but anyway, it was it was such a good time. I had such a great experience making the game. Uh, so it's called Become One, by the way. That's the first game gym I participated in as well. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like we're soulmates. I feel like so we're soulmates. <laughs> I sent like, I remember seeing, uh, John, Ooh. John, mm-hmm. one of the two runners of the jam, like made a tweet about it, talking about like, Oh, I got this idea for a game. And I'm like, Oh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Cause like, I'm also working on a, like emotional mech game in a different vein. Oh. I was, I was working on live, love, die at the time. And yeah, like, but it was separately, and, like, from the jam. Yeah. And then I checked oh, the comments, wow. and it was, like, a bunch of people had said pretty much the same thing. And then, so, and then, wow. and then uh, out came this other t- this other tweet saying, all right, we're doing a mech jam now. It's an emotional mech. I'm like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I I can't put Live, Love, Die in there, because Live, Love, Die is months away from being finished and also will be, like, a full role-playing game. Right. So it right, doesn't right. fit the things. And so I did the... I did live, love, die, remember, which we've talked ah, about. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love it so much, though. I really, really love. And, you know, I think that's what I love about game jams, too, right? It encourages you to at least put out a prototype or to experiment. Yeah. Or, and so, or many people, so many people got pulled into, like, making their first games because of, um, because of the Emotional Maker Game Jam. Yeah, I think yeah, afterwards, yeah. Um, it were, I can't remember who exactly said this, uh, reported the statistic, but... Mm-hmm. We, as a community of mecha <laughs> game writers, made ten percent of the total yeah. R- RPGs, well, physical games on itch. Ten yeah. percent of those are mecha games. <laughs> and they <laughs> were made by the emotional mecha game yeah, yeah. in a month. It was so insane. I think it was Takuma who said that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. It was so insane. And. Um, but, you know, that's still one of my favorite jams. Like, I still go over the games. I still want to play a lot of the games. And that's how I met so many great people mm-hmm. on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, and that's how I met um, uh, Ben. Oh, yeah. Ben is such a... Ben is such, like, a... Uh, I really admire him so much. Like, uh, he's really a constant inspiration because he approaches game design so joyfully and he's always willing to experiment and he always connects to the community. So that's what I, that's also what I'm striving to do as a designer myself. 
Yeah. And so you've contributed to a lot of jams this year now. <laughs> uh, hence why I mentioned it in your intro. You've, you've contributed to pretty much every jam that's come out is my understanding. You've at least taken a look and tried to make something for to the point yeah, where yeah. a few of us have been like, you know, you don't have, if, if you're feeling overworked, you don't have to do the jam. You can yeah, just like yeah. write down your idea. Oh my God. My partner, he's, he's been like, you know, do you have to join every single one? I was like, you know, I, I, there are like a couple, I didn't, you know? but yeah. So like I looked at the numbers recently and I was like, I think, I think it's 14. Well, one is a non-game jam. So, um, yeah, yep. but, but, uh, so it's like, I think it's 13 games and some of them are really long. Like when I worked on the, their love destroyed this land, the map game. I had such a hard time sticking to the 4,000 word limit. And I sort of realized, Jammy, why, how long do your games have to be? <laughs> I mean, I made a game that's 83 words long. Oh, wow. I, I yeah. dream of. <laughs> um, I actually have it right here. Oh, awesome. Awesome. See, uh, oh. so for those that are listening, it's my business card game. Arosha is 83 words long. Oh my gosh! I also want to work on a business card game. I love those so I've seen much. I see them coming out. They're like, oh wow! Yeah, it's and I, I think I, that's what I love about the game jams and the the indie design community is that it's so there are just so many things you can do and there's so many ways to go about it. Like what I'm really excited about lately is Sword Dream. Yes. Um, so I'm not. Mm. I have seen the phrase Sword Dream around, right, and I have. Right. An idea of where it came from, but I don't really understand what it means, which I think is makes me the perfect vessel for the audience here. Can you <laughs> please tell us more about what the sword dream is? Okay, okay, I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> That's all we ask. Yeah, yeah, because basically um, the main thing is that all of us are also still figuring it out. So um, it started with... Um, his Twitter handle is Trebuchet Ops. Uh, Michael, gosh, I'm trying to remember Michael's last name. It's this really gorgeous last name I can't pronounce. <laughs> but um, basically, Sword Dream was just a really, it was just a joke. It just started as a joke, if I understand it correctly, on Google+. Plus. Uh, rest in peace, Google+. Plus. I never made it to you, but I understand how much you've affected the RPG community. So, um, but Sword Dream literally stood for Second Wave of RPG Design, Sword, DIY Rules Everything Around Me, Dream, right? Wow. So, I didn't right, know it was an acronym. Right? Isn't that so bad? I think that's what got to me. I was like, wow, it is such a... I thought it was cool, uh, but other people were like, oh, it's so funny. And I was like, man, is that my anime showing? Do I find, like, weird acronyms? That's <laughs> really cool. I mean... <laughs> I am here for weird acronyms. I know, right? So, so basically, it started with them talking about Sword Dream, and I felt like it just resonated with me so much because I chose... Well, I say I chose, but um, I did a tower reading because I, I forgot to mention I'm a professional tower reader and psychic and magic person in general. That's and very cool. Yeah, so like part, I think part of the reason why I've been able to design so many games is because I do a reading per game. Like It helps me structure uh, and figure out how to design and stuff, so... Uh, every time I ask what should I call my my game design stuff or where should I go with this, I always pull the Queen of Swords over and over again. Like I've pulled her like maybe fourteen times so far this year. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna call it. I'm just gonna call it Sword Queen Games. You know, 
<laughs> Look, and I so mean, when I, yeah, something's clearly speaking. Right. So when I saw Sword Dream, I was like, I feel like it's talking to me. <laughs> I feel like I'm being called. And it's so funny because it's from a part of the RPG community I never quite fully understood. Like I had, um, so I know OSR is a really big thing, but I also understood there was some sort of weird divide between like story games and OSR. Like there was always this like... Yeah. So like, I know that when I first sort of became aware of that divide, I just thought that the, I thought that it basically came down to people that want their games to be really mechanically complicated and and people that want their games to be streamlined uh, and for the kind of almost falling down to a divide on which part of the word of which part of the term role-playing game you're stressing? Right. Are you stressing role-playing or are you stressing playing (laughs) game? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, what's really funny is, so I started, um, because what I love about Twitter is you can just go out there and ask people questions. Yeah. Like I could just ask, hey, how do I make my games more gay? How do I? (laughs) So when I started thinking about Swordstream, I just literally asked, okay, so what can I cannot, what can uh, or can I not do when I'm designing a sword dream like how does it work and i was so blown away with how the sword dream osr community was just so welcoming and they were like no do whatever you want like this is just where we're coming from this is what the idea is but you know if you want to inject more story game into it more ppta you know just just go for it i was surprised with how welcoming that that aspect because right that's not the impression we get right like when you look yeah. online i mean when you think about osr you don't think about that yeah, you don't so think about definitely. the welcoming aspect. Yeah, and I think that's what started shifting Sword Dream towards we want people to feel welcome. We want people to feel like anyone can be a part of OSR. We, we don't want to create this divide. So, so when I talk about it with people, they say, oh, so it's more of a community thing. And I say, well, yes, but that also informs the design, right? Because yeah. like, are your designs more inclusive? Because so, you know, going back to me being Filipino, um, me looking at these games where you go into a dungeon, kill the people who live there, mm-hmm. and take their stuff is a little—it's a little problematic coming from a country that's been colonized three times, right? So we yeah, think- I was gonna ask when you were talking about the um, let's go with misogyny present in the folklore that you were talking about. I was wondering—I was tempted oh. to ask how much of that is. Oh yeah, stuff it's very that has come from outside, like stuff absolutely. that has been forced on. Not yes, yes. Actually, it's it's really it's such a huge conversation. But like the Philippines originally, our culture was um, like we believed in polyamory. Um, our way of viewing religion and the world and spirituality was what I'm trying to convey in that that game I was mm-hmm. working on. It was more of God is within us. We are all God. We are all the hands of God. And but then you know Catholicism and the Spanish and the you know the idea of monogamy, the idea of control. Like for example, the tikbalang. Um, it's a creature. It's sort of like an anthropomorphic horse. If I'm going to be honest, like it's a so. But the thing is, we don't they, naturally have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, are there horses in the Philippines naturally? Exactly. Exactly. We do not naturally have horses in the Philippines. In fact, the tikbalang. I'll have to say that my friend BJ Resho is like so amazing at this. He spends a lot of time researching this and he's one of the pillars of our community. But basically what he explained to me once was that, um, right. We don't originally, we didn't originally have horses here. So 
And the Tikbalam was originally not supposed to look like a horse. It was supposed to look like something else. But then the Spanish just sort of like took it and said, oh, you have to be scared of things that are half horse and half man because they wanted to instill this fear of the Spanish powerful people who are on their horses, right? Right. Isn't it awful? It's awful, right? (laughs) Yeah, wow. That's fucking wild. Yeah, so that's why my, my version of the Thigbalang is the game is like, I just mash them with every type of robotic animal. So they're like half spider, half horse, whatever. I don't care. Like, uh, <laughs> there's, um, I was just like, I'm going to get rid of that. <laughs> there's a really not great Hercules movie where, oh, uh-huh. where it does these weird shots where it's like, we show you the mythical creature and then we sort of like shift it and we show you what it actually is. Uh, and, and, the, and the first establishing shot is like this is like, here's how it's been changed by time. So like, there's a bit where they show you the centaurs and it's got this photo of these, you know, it's got like these big centaurs and then it like sort of pans the camera and you just see that it's a dude on the back of a horse. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just reminding me of that. I'm like, and I'm now like, okay, so the Spanish wanted wanted people to think of them as centaurs. Okay. Right, right. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of, so like a lot of these myths and stuff we're controlling and, Wow, I'm trying to remember how did I get here from Sword Dream. Oh, okay. Wait, oh, sorry, I sorry. was asking about the influence of colonization. And yeah. but before that, you were talking about how going into dungeons and killing the things that are living there yeah, feels bad. Really weird. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just like, so I didn't feel welcome uh, in the community. I just felt like, you know, I don't want to have to explain why this is. Bad. why this is bad and why I don't like it. Like, I, cause I, you know, I honestly didn't want to begrudge people what they enjoyed also. Um, yeah. But that's also part of me being growing up as a woman of color, biracial, like I'm sort of conditioned to not like create waves. Right. So yeah, I just didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to get into it really. And, but you know, the amazing thing about OSR is earlier you said mechanical versus streamlined, mm-hmm. but What's really weird is because my, my point of contention with a lot of OSR is that it seems so combat focused, right? Like you open mm. up the book and the first few pages are always, this is the type of weapons you can have. This is how much damage they do, blah, blah, blah. Like it's very, very combat-y and very rah, rah, violence, rah, rah, dark souls, rah, rah, survive. So, mm-hmm. um, but then when I talked to people about it, it was so weird. They kept saying, no, but the whole point of OSR when you play is that if you end up in a combat situation, you have screwed up somehow. Right, you're supposed to do everything you can to avoid getting to that point. That's and not what like, it feels like when you look at those games. Right, when you look at the design, right? And I go, but but the design does not communicate that. When I read it, I will assume that fighting is supposed to happen a lot. It's just supposed to be really punishing, right? And they're like, yeah, but because it's punishing, you realize I don't want to get into this. You know, my character could die, and I was like, that's wow, not what so- I realize. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so, but, you know, I've been having all these amazing conversations, like with Mappa Harper and Michael uh, and all these other people. They've been so kind to me, really taking the time, uh, especially with Twitter, because we only have how many characters, right? So they've really been taking the time to explain all of this to me. And I realize it's really this difference, because then I actually think the weird thing about story games and PPTA is that we try to create a mechanical support system for everything that can happen in the game, but with, you know, with more player input and more creativity and more openness versus OSR, where a lot of it is not written down and a lot of it is just engaged with, mm. right? But then it, you, so it's a strange thing, right? It's like a very, so I've been working on my sore dream. I've been working on my first, um, and 
I've been trying to like experiment with the idea of death and how that's supposed to feel like and resource management and exploration, which is a lot of what OSR is about. And I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for surgery. Like I would have just looked from the sidelines and I would have just really felt like this is not for me. This is a part of RPG in the community that's not welcoming for me. But it's because so many people really engaged so kindly, so lovingly. Um, they asked to really talk to me. And I also felt like, even though I kept saying, you know, I'm very new to this, I don't understand a lot of this. Um, people really want to hear my opinions. They want to understand where I'm coming from. They want to see me and people like me make games. And so that's why I'm really excited about Sword Dream. So I will say that it is community. Uh, we do have nine principles. Uh, I say we, but right, it's it's just a bunch of us talking on Discord servers and Twitter trying to figure this out. Um, I mean, so that's a way. That's definitely a way. <laughs> right. So it's a few dozen of us who are trying that's, to. That's more of a we yeah. than when I talk about we at Insert Quest here. It's like, this is an empty <laughs> room. I'm on my own. <laughs> but yeah. And so like, but, you know, so we have our nine principles up. Um, I'll provide a link for it. Uh, and but it's an ongoing conversation, right? We're trying to figure stuff out. Nothing is set in stone, um, and I think that's part of the joy, though, right? Part of the joy is in figuring it out. Like, how can we create a space that's really welcoming, that doesn't allow for toxicity, um, that really supports each other, that really like focuses on creativity and that joy. So um, yeah, so basically, I feel like Sword Dream just makes sense because as a designer, that's what I'm always aiming for engaging with the community. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it can be, there are, it's, it's interesting you're talking about like engaging with the community and that's often a thing that I have trouble with. And it's only recently mm-hmm. that I've realized the reason I have trouble with that is because of a, I want to say, I want to say a, Euro, a Western European <laughs> thing definitely a british and american thing Uh uh of a deconstruction of community and a kind of a a blasting of community to a point where like community doesn't communities aren't aren't things that are really there almost i mean I, i don't know if that quite makes sense but like the way that community exists in and the way that that word is used in like australia for example which is where my prime example is which is where my life experience is coming from is like community means the place you live it doesn't really mean the people you interact with and the people that are important Mm -hmm. to your life which is what it should mean and is what it is used by other people who have attempted to find ways to communicate their ideas in their english um, right. and i think that's because like um from an asian perspective like uh, a filipino perspective community is more important than the individual mm. um for better or for worse right and once again going back to curse of Bahala, one of the main game mechanics was trying to figure out how much of an individual you are and how much of part of the community you are. So as you can see, I really was so full of myself. I would, I would, I would like to take Max individual because I have notoriously been bad at putting the uh, things that communities want for me ahead of my own desires. Yeah, Although that's right. normally because the things that my communities want for me are negative generally. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and I absolutely agree. Like I, I have felt the same way, like, um, 
where I, I love the community, but the community demands strange things from me in the Philippines. But, but it's so hard to like remove that, right? Like in the Philippines, when you're talking to an average person, it's very normal for someone to say, well, I didn't want to study this in college, but I had to because my parents said so. Or, oh, I didn't really like this guy, but my mom and my friends liked him, so I dated him and now I'm married. You know, like, yeah, like kind of. <laughs> that sort of stuff terrifies me. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of a reason why we're like the only country that doesn't have divorce yet. <laughs> like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, we are the, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure because like, I think aside from the Vatican, we are the only country in the world um, where you can't get divorced. So you can get an annulment, which is very expensive and crazy difficult. But yeah, so it's kind of insane, right? Because we... That's wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, the thing is because the idea is when you get married, it's not for yourself, kind of, right? It's like for your family. Mm. It's for the community. And so if... Yeah, it's really complicated, right? There's also like gender stuff in there, but... uh, but yeah, and so because of that, because of this whole central, like RPGC, I think part of the reason why we're so talkative online and we're so, uh, we're so, we engage with each other so much is because that's just how Asians were sort of like, a lot of our culture is about perpetually engaging in these communities, in these groups. And uh, for, you know, there's, there's a good side to it. You know, there's a lot of engagement, but there's also like um, the pitfalls, like you said, like about how to fight for your own individual voice how to fight for your own individual needs if they're not the same as the group indeed and like i mean similarly there are pitfalls to being super individualist like (laughs) if you don't as i didn't when i was younger value (laughs) how other people feel then Mm -hmm. then being individualist is gonna have well, I mean, you won't see it as negative outcomes because you don't care how other people feel, but <laughs> other people will feel put out by you. And so, like, as I have become, as I have realized that I don't want to be a person who uh, who makes other people feel bad about themselves for no good reason, um, mm. there are definitely people that need to feel bad about themselves. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's not the majority of people. Um, <clears throat> as I realized that I don't want to be this person that makes other people feel like shit. I've, <laughs> I have decided that that is a part of my individuality, that caring about other people and trying to help them is, <laughs> is my individualist power fantasy. <laughs> wow. That is such a great like journey. I, I love that. I love the way you put it. And actually like, as you were talking, as I was thinking about it, the funny thing is like, so in the, Locally, right, in the in, in Manila, the Philippines, a lot of us, um, like in most places, I guess, D&D is still the main thing. Um, and, and basically, like, the more not-so-mainstream stuff is... But, you know, it's on the rise. It's, um, it's getting there. Uh, but also, I could feel like how, as I was designing games, I wasn't getting much engagement from the local community. Like, because a lot of yeah. them were like oh, I'm more interested in D&D or I'm more interested in this. Like, I just wouldn't have anybody really want to talk to me or geek out with me when I talked about the game design stuff. I feel like that is an almost universal experience for role-playing. Oh, really? Like, I I get that here and I'm like, I get that from people that that I talk to about games about and are excited. I'm like, they're like, oh, wow, that's a really cool idea. And then I'm like, yeah, cool. And they're like, cool, we're going to go play Pathfinder and World of Darkness. I'm like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> Although different, 
lately. Like I've found that really, I just have to find the thing that D and D definitely can't do. It's like you can't run, uh, you can't uh, run a mech game in D and D and World of Darkness. <laughs> So now I can actually get you to play test my game because it's about right, right, absolutely. No, but you know I I agree and like um um yeah. So the latest game I'm working on um so it's 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 in beta. It's Take My Revolution. Um, so it is my first ridiculously queer gay game. I love it so much. <laughs> but, I'm you know, glad that I we're both ha- working on games that embody like wanting to be more gay at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like I got that from a lot of people like um, John who set up the sad mecha jam. He has so many like proudly gay games. So <laughs> I feel like that was part of it. And also river house games has a lot of proudly gay games. So it helped me. We did an actual uh, want to engage with that, but we did an actual play a little while ago of their, oh. of their two player dragon game. And it was, so gay and i was just like is this also furry who cares who cares about a rider falling in love with their dragon that's fine yeah <laughs> i love that so much that's so good yeah and like um but actually i just want to uh like on twitter i realized i was talking to kazumi chin and they were talking about what makes uh, a game gay for them and as they were talking about it i was like oh that's what i think that's what my games are like i am my games are gay. I didn't realize, you know, like it's encoded into my DNA uh, this whole time. <laughs> but, but like in Take My Revolution, so I find that to engage with people locally, I just sort of have to lovingly force the game on them. <laughs> like, uh, but you know, we had, so I had a play test yesterday um, and it was really, it was so much fun because, so it's based on Revolutionary Girl Yutena, which is in itself a deconstruction of the magical girl genre. But if I had to really break it down, it's about pretending that you're fighting with swords, but you're actually trying to both love each other and break each other's hearts while you do it. I think that's the main core of like Utena is like. <laughs> yeah, I've so never I tr- heard of that magical girl anime before your game, and I was like, oh, cool, another one to check out. Yeah, it's um, I love it so much because it's such a weird like. Okay, so if you haven't watched it yet, I feel like you have to watch the anime knowing that nothing is real, like you're, you're watching a dream. I think that's what's going to help make it make sense. Like there, there are clues in the beginning, but it's not until like, like later on that you realize, wow, everything is so crazy. <laughs> like everything is so, it's, it's all metaphor, but it's all real. It's, it's, it's more real because it's metaphor. Anyway, I'm not gonna. So I, I wanted to try to capture that and take my revolution. And I had so much fun watching. Um, and, you know, I got to play and it's based, it's a hack. Uh, Vincent and Megway Baker's um, mobile mobile frame zero firebrands and the king is dead. Like I mashed those two games together. I thought um, you were gonna say it was um, a hack of Under Hollow Hill, and I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's also cool. I just thought that you had already gotten your hack of Under Hollow Hill out. And I'm like, I don't even <laughs> think that game's finished. <laughs> Oh, I'm also excited for that too. But yeah, and like, um, and I and I love the system because it's such a great casual. Well, they say casual, but it just means it's easy to pick up. There's no GM. I get to also be a player with everybody. Um, there's such a beautiful structure about the game, um, and so it it was mostly just about fighting each other, but also like admitting who you love or who you don't love because. 
there are parts in the game where you say, um, so it's, it's, it's tight, the mechanics are cards. If you want to win the duel, you have to throw down the right cards when you're asked at the right time. So some of the questions yesterday were, um, someone was like, I said to someone, if you want to win this duel, if you want to win this point, um, I know, so I know a secret about someone you love, show a heart card in order for me to tell you. And then that person looked at me and said, but it's your character that I'm in love with. <laughs> oh, and everyone at the table was like, what? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, I'm, I'm babbling about this game because I love it. I mean, so that's, much, that's good. <laughs> but basically like um i i feel good after the game because even though there was a part of me that was shy about pushing myself out there and really insisting on the play test lovingly uh with my friends everybody ended up having a good time so mm-hmm. it's bolden me to uh because because since i have about 13 games i have to play test all of them more regularly <laughs> so. that is fair although i have I uh, I have found that some games don't need to be playtested. Mm. Um, granted, the games that don't need to be playtested tend <laughs> to be the more weird art projecty ones. Right. So right. take that as you will. <laughs> like Arosha and my game that is about summoning demons. I don't plan to playtest them. <laughs> Right, right, because they're more open. Because more- the, the part of them that is more more important is the studying them and looking at them. Like, you can play them and they're meant to be played, but, like, mm-hmm. it is more important of this is a thing that can exist and it is technically a game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look at it and think about it. Like, Arosha is Arosha's 83 words and more than half of those words are dedicated to getting you to think about safety tools when flirting right, with people. Right. 83 words and half of it is about being safe. Um, yeah, so. oh, which is so good, which is so important though. Yeah, because like yesterday during Take My Revolution, like some of the people at the game, they didn't know each other and then the game is so immediately like mm-hmm. tied to romance and intimacy and... Yeah, I mean, I've, I had that problem with an early version of Live, Love, Die where oh. there's a move that's like, there was a thing that where you had to like you could ask people about the other character like you were reading their mind but you mm-hmm. had to then they then got to ask you something and you had to tell them we realized mm-hmm. that that was a lot of emotional investment to come up with in an wow. instant and so wow. sort of changed the way it worked which actually ended up making it more like what actually happens in uh, mm-hmm. mecha anime when there's a psychic mech that can read people's <laughs> minds, which turns oh out to be a weirdly common theme in Gundam <laughs> shows. I know, but I love it. <laughs> Even the like hard sci-fi Gundam shows have psychic we'll have Gundam that. in them. <laughs> it's such an essential, essential part. Oh gosh, I'm so excited for your game. But yeah, I mean... Um, I think for me, in terms of like wanting to play test, because like I, I was just like looking at my games now, mm-hmm. I feel like I really enjoy. I mean, I'm trying to push myself. I'm trying to push myself to do the more artsy, open stuff. But um, a lot of the games I make are more mechanically supported. Not all of them, mm-hmm. right? Um, but even the ones where I know they're they're a hack of something good. I know that the system is good. There's a part of me because I was a teacher trainer um, for I think 
yeah, I think uh, I think it has to be like 15 years across different jobs. So there's a part of me that wants to make sure that it actually works. That, yeah, like that it works as intended. That that I think also like I want it to be easy to pick up and understand because that's also what I love about PBTA and story games is that it's not like D and D and stuff where like you have to read it again and again a few times to really get it. Mm-hmm. To like really feel like you've got, which you know, I mean, once again, it's um, I understand the joy in that. People but, that love studying love yeah. Pathfinder because <laughs> yeah. like I just I don't want it to sound like I hate it, hate it, but you know, like, I, it's I don't just wanna... different. Different people are drawn yeah. to those aspects of the games, and for people that don't like those things, they feel negative yeah right right like i don't want to i keep saying it but i don't want to begrudge what people are into and what indeed. they love indeed yeah, there's a reason like, there are reasons to enjoy D. it's not a it's yeah. not a extremely popular game for nothing it's just right, absolutely. there are also absolutely. reasons why it's not everyone's most beloved game for me yeah, it yeah. like intersects with a lot of learning disabilities that i have uh, oh, that make yeah. it difficult for me to play which is why I get really yeah. annoyed when people are like oh but it's so easy to learn I'm like in what universe <laughs> <laughs> on what yeah, planet yeah. did you get yeah. your copy of D&D that's easy to learn yeah and I think that's also a thing right like there's this sort of like I think that's a holdover of the geek culture like things are supposed to be objectively good or objectively bad mm-hmm. but so much of it is context so much of it is background so much of it is where you're coming from um yeah, like, I think I also have to have a quick shout-out to Sundown. It's uh, one of my favorite new TTRPGs that I discovered. We did an interview with the makers of Sundown a little while ago. Yeah, oh my gosh, I, I, I love uh, I love them so much. And the game is so good. And I was like, when I was reading through it, and when I was trying it out with my, my players, I was like, wow, this is what it's like to have a game where disabilities are taken into account, where queerness is taken into account, where being trans is taken into account. But it's so like, once again, it's kind of invisible, right? It's just sort of like, it's just inside everything. And then when I went back to reading D&D, I was like, oh, I can see the male whiteness, (laughs) you know, permeating the male cishet abled whiteness, you know, like this kind of and once again, because it's invisible, it just permeates everything. And yeah. not that it's bad, but I would just like more games that that are are coming from more voices. I think that's really where I'm coming from. Exactly, and I mean that's that's something that I really care about too. With there are games that I have decided not to make because after thinking about them, I've been like, oh, hang on a minute, I'm I I don't have the budget to hire the people that would make it so that I can make this game safely. Like, I can't, I can't, as a white Australian, write a game about protecting refugees on a floating island city. That's, that's, that's in bad taste. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Like, even though it sounds like such an interesting concept and seems super fun, it's like, yeah, but, you know, there there has to be, like, all this invisible There's going to be so many things that I'm going to think are fine that I won't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll just yeah. I'll just like oh yeah, that's fine. It's great. It's power fantasy. It's like I mean, is it is it a power fantasy for you? Is it a power fantasy for the subject? And yada yada yada. Um, sadly, we're we're at our time limit. Unfortunately, yeah. I'm so sorry. I keep babbling on. No, you did wonderfully. This was a fantastic interview, and I can't wait to uh, talk to you again once. Uh, 
take my revolution is out of beta because it sounds like it's going to be a really fantastic game. Um, people that want to follow your projects and follow uh, your progress as a game designer, uh, where can they find out more information about you or stay abreast of what you're doing yeah so i'm i'm ridiculously active well maybe not compared to other people i'm ridiculously active on twitter way more active uh, than i am on twitter <laughs> and uh, i also my itch.io page is a good if you if you have an itch.io account i encourage you to follow it and um also i have a patreon set up for sword queen games because um you know as much as i love being a full-time tarot reader and psychic i'm trying to like spin it so I can be like half tower reader, half, you know, professional game designer. That's the dream. <laughs> so people can find me on those things. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll have, well, we will have links uh, to all those things down below. Uh, and uh, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, uh, you can listen to other interviews like it on our uh, main website or on SoundCloud by clicking on the interview tag. Um, we have interviews from Australian game designers and designers from all around the world, as well as other people that work in the RPG industry, including editors. And we have an upcoming interview with another podcaster, but also someone involved in running Kickstarters. Uh, and also, I think we have an upcoming interview with somebody that does a lot of art for games. So those are all sort of things you can find. Um, yeah, we've got a bunch of interviews and we also have a bunch of actual plays. Uh, and you can also support us on Patreon uh, if you so wish. Uh, other than that, I want to thank you for being on the show. It was fantastic to talk to you and I look forward to talking to you again. <laughs> uh, but for now... Uh, Farewell from the past, I'm Ray. <laughs>